You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. So, Phil, you said that when you come back next time, you're going to talk about the tabernacle and the construction of the tabernacle. Okay. But I don't want to wait until then to talk about, have you described Spurgeon and his cigars? Okay. Because that is a fascinating issue because a lot of people think that Spurgeon regretted smoking cigars or that he stopped. Um, other people think that he was so virulently pro-cigar that he was almost aggressive with it. Right. Um, and so you can kind of explain that. And when you're done with all of that, ask some questions if you want. About This is just about Spurgeon and cigars. And then if Phil gets through that quickly, we'll have a few questions about that I want to talk about Grace Community Church and the, okay. the COVID restrictions. All right. Yeah, I wasn't going to talk about Spurgeon and his cigars, but uh, Jim compelled me. So here we are. It's, it is one of the most common questions that I get asked. Is it true that Spurgeon smoked cigars or is it true that he gave them up? By the way, there is no photograph uh, in existence of Spurgeon with a cigar in his hand. I photoshopped that in there. So he, he, he would not appreciate my doing that, but it, it seemed to go with the page. And this was one of the lingering controversies in his life that he sort of got into accidentally. Uh, but I, I get so many questions for it that I, I put this page up. Uh, the lore, uh, usually from American sources, uh, and I have printed sources, newspaper accounts of Spurgeon and his life dating back to the year he died with American people saying, now, yeah, he smoked cigars for a while, but he gave it up because he became ashamed of it. Or he saw an ad in the window of a shop and it, it embarrassed him, so he gave it up. Yeah, you can ignore my text messages and tell my wife to stop sending them to me. So, so... <laughs> Yeah, I hope nothing personal comes through there, but just just ignore it, okay? Like So so um I was I I I my understanding was that Spurgeon never gave up smoking and so when I met his great-grandson, uh I actually encountered him online. I never met him face to face, but I asked him the question about that and he said uh he said, oh, Spurgeon was still smoking a cigar the day he died. He said, I own this half cigar that he smoked that he didn't finish. And he said, I have a cigar case. And uh, I said, yeah, send me pictures of that. So he did. So here it is. This is a this is Spurgeon's cigar case. The one on top, the half-smoked cigar, is the half-smoked cigar that, in fact, let me uh, click the picture. Gives you a high-res Look at this note, which says, C.H. Spurgeon Cigar Case with uh, Unfinished Cigar Smoked at Mentone, January, 1980, er, January 1892, given to me by C.H.S. Armor Bearer, W. Harold, that was his secretary again, uh, signed by, I think, Thomas Spurgeon, T. Spurgeon. So he passed it on to his grandson, and... Uh, so it still exists somewhere today. Now that David Spurgeon, the great-grandson that I knew, has gone to heaven, I, I don't know 
I don't know where this would be today, but uh, I was happy to get a picture of it and a letter of the authentication. People often also ask me, what brand did he smoke? And these had the pictures of unsmoked cigars that he sent me had pictures of the brand on it. So I looked it up. It's called Providor, Providor, Providor de la Casa, which means purveyor to the royal house. Uh, and the other two circles identify the F.P. del Rio, uh, Francisco Perez del Rio, the famous Cuban cigar maker of that era. Uh, here's a link to some of their typical labels and boxes. So this was a large company that made um, cigars. And the history of it here, the brand uh, that Spurgeon smoked was thrown to the market in 1880 by somebody. Uh, and in 1881, the brand was sold to Francisco Perez del Rio, who used it as his name for the industrial unit he'd settled to. There's even the address of the factory here. As you know, all the cigar factories have been taken over now by the Cuban government. And by the way, as I said, there's no photograph of Spurgeon, but a contemporary artist, a, a, a woman who I don't know, sent me this painting that she did of Spurgeon with his cigar in his hand and the smoke coming up. I don't think he would appreciate that either, but I liked it that she got the the pose that he's so well known for, plus the cigar there. I hope he flicks the ashes off before it burns through his pants. <laughs> but there you have it. Uh, now, there are these anecdotes about his cigars that uh, are taken from a book, a little book that I have that's delightful. It's called... Uh, Personal Reminiscences of Charles Haddon Spurgeon by a man named William Williams who knew Spurgeon well. And two of the anecdotes that he records have to do with Spurgeon smoking. So I'll read them to you. You can probably read them for yourself, but I'll do it just in case. All the world knows that Mr. Spurgeon now and again enjoyed a cigar. Not a few caricatures represented him smoking a pipe, but he never used a pipe all the years I knew him. His shrewd reply to the gentleman who had heard he smoked but could not believe it to be true and asked Mr. Spurgeon to satisfy him his choice. He said, I cultivate my flowers and I burn my weeds. Uh, it, one of his servants one day saw him lighting a cigar, enjoying your tobacco again, said George. I can do without my tobacco a good, easier, a good deal easier than you can, George, said Spurgeon. Spurgeon says, I don't believe you can, sir. Well, he says, don't smoke again until I do. And the servant agreed. And so a week passed, then two weeks. Poor old George was dying for his pipe. One was asked to intercede with a master so that George might be allowed to have it again. No, said Mr. Spurgeon. He made a bargain. Let him stick to it. Eventually, George was allowed to smoke, but Mr. Spurgeon did not have a cigar for months after that. Uh, that's an important story because it shows that Spurgeon's use of tobacco was not an addiction. It was more of an occasional thing. Uh, Williams goes on to describe this. When he was living at Nightingale Lane in Clapham, I know exactly where that is. It's pretty close to where the Wimbledon uh, grounds are today. And Spurgeon had a house there for a while. It says he organized an excursion with one of the young men's classes from the tabernacle. The break with the excursionists was to call for the president on their way to mid-Surrey, so they're going somewhere like on a picnic or whatever. Men arrived in high spirits, pipes and cigars alight, and looking forward to a day of unrestrained enjoyment. Spurgeon was ready and waiting at the gauge. He jumped on the box seat reserved for him, and looking around with an expression of astonishment, he exclaimed, What, gentlemen, 
Are you not ashamed to be smoking so early? William says, here was a damper. Dismay on every face. Pipes and cigars, one by one, failed and dropped out of sight. But when all of them had disappeared, out came the president's cigar case. He lit up and smoked away serenely. The men looked at him astonished. I thought you said you objected to smoking, Mr. Spurgeon, one ventured. Oh, no, I did not say I objected. I asked if you were not ashamed. And it appears they were because they all put their pipes away. Uh, and, of course, you've already seen this uh, tobacco card. I, I would, I, I really don't want to drag this out for you and keep you here longer than you need to, but look up this page. You'll find it easily by Googling my name and Spurgeon Cigars, and there is a very long, annotated account of the controversy that arose. What brought this to the forefront of the public was Spurgeon had an American preacher come over who preached on... I, I don't remember the, the topic, but he was talking about the enslavement of sin and, and how to mortify sin, and he said that one of the things he had given up was the sin of smoking. And of course, everybody in the congregation knew that Spurgeon smoked cigars. This was not something he hid, and so he had to say something after the gentleman finished his message. And so he said, I, I have to disagree with him that smoking is a sin. If I thought it was a sin, if I thought there was anything wrong with it, I wouldn't do it, but I intend to go home tonight and smoke the best cigar I have to the glory of God. <laughs> and there was a newspaper reporter there who reported it in the London Telegraph, which stirred quite a scandal. Most Americans believed smoking is an unsavory habit that Christians shouldn't do. In England, it wasn't quite so controversial, but there were people in England who objected to smoking. And it's pretty much like the attitude towards dancing today. Lots of Christians believe under no circumstances should you ever dance, and others say it's a matter of Christian liberty, and that's how this was. Nobody knew that tobacco was the source of lung cancer or, or that it wasn't really good for your health. And in fact, Spurgeon's cigars had been recommended to him by a doctor who told him it would ease the pain of his gout. Whether that's true or not, whether it actually would ease the pain of his gout, I don't know. But Spurgeon believed it and believed he got benefit from it, and so he kept doing it. But the scandal that was stirred when the London newspaper reported that Spurgeon said he was going to smoke to the glory of God put Spurgeon in a position where he had to answer that. And so he wrote an article, I think it was in the newspaper, it's on here somewhere, when you read this page you'll see it, but he basically said, I, I don't want to defend the phrase smoking to the glory of God because it sounds flippant and, and I didn't mean it that way. He said, I'm simply saying, I don't believe it's a sin. I believe everything I do can be done to the glory of God. And we're commanded to do whatever we do, whether we eat or drink, to the glory of God. And I'm simply saying, I don't believe it's a sin, and I'm not going to stop doing it in order to, to satisfy someone else's scruples, give up my Christian liberty for the sake of someone else's conscience. Uh, and so he wouldn't... Uh, he wouldn't trouble another person's conscience by trying to cajole them into smoking or by smoking in front of them, but he felt like when he was at home and reading in his own study, he was perfectly free to do whatever his conscience gave him liberty to do. And on that, I agree with him. So there are lots of articles here, both for and against Spurgeon. It'll give you a really good taste. It'll probably take you a half hour, 45 minutes to read it all but it will give you a good taste of uh, the controversy that arose over Spurgeon's smoking and how widespread it was so that it reached even to America. And a few years ago, a friend of mine, Gary Long, who's a Spurgeon aficionado and an expert, 
called me and said that he'd received an offer from someone, I think, in Ohio, someone in Central America, a central part of the continent like that, uh, who had told him that they found in the attic a collection of his father's or grandfather's memorabilia that included some personal letters from Spurgeon. He had corresponded with Spurgeon. And uh, Gary told me that one of them has to do with Spurgeon's cigars. And I said, oh, send me a photocopy of that. So he did. And this is it. Uh, I'll read it to you. Uh, well, I transcribed it here. He writes, Dear friend, I ought to have answered your letter, but I've been ill and overworked. Thanks, for it did me good. What a badgering I have gone through, but I yield not, for what I said was right. There is no liberty left us by these spiritual prudes. When you see an opening, say a word, for I've been shot at as a lone crow, whereas thousands think as I do, or ought to do, to be consistent. If we cannot live near to God and smoke, we must give it up. I can, and I shall not confess to the contrary, not even by my silence. There's the handwritten letter. So uh, so all of that is just to, to demonstrate. So if you hear these tales that are told that Spurgeon gave up smoking, don't believe it. It didn't happen. I don't necessarily defend uh, people who are smoking aficionados, but I think the way Spurgeon did it, as I said, he wasn't addicted. Uh, he did it as a matter of Christian liberty, and I, for one, would be hesitant to charge him with sin because of it. So there you have it. If you want a copy of uh, any of these documents or a picture of Spurgeon's last cigar, you can get it at my website. As if there's a lot more for the next time you come up with the cigar <laughs> oh, yeah. thing. So. Yeah, if you want to hear all those documents and the, and the seriously, cigar the, controversy. the uh, those newspaper articles about the smoking controversy are fascinating. You really, you really will do well to look up that web page and read it all. It's just it would take us another forty-five minutes if I went through the whole yeah. thing. That's a whole other session, is what you're saying. Yeah. So, a number of people here. I'm going to change, switch gears here just a little bit. A number of people here, a large number of our congregation, have been praying for Grace Community Churches. You guys have pushed back against. COVID restrictions. We know that you shut down like most other churches did. You opened it up, it made, you opened back up and it made national news. Uh, you and I talked a little bit about this on the way back from the airport. Um, we opened up a, a while before that, but haven't had nearly the pushback. We haven't had any pushback here uh, compared to what you guys have gone through. Give us an inside, um, scoop of what it is that made you guys open up. What was the reasoning behind that? Um, what conclusions did you guys come to and, and how did you do it? Yeah. When the, when the quarantine was instituted, of course, we, like, like everyone else, had no um, objective data by which to know whether the virus was really as serious as they were saying it might be. And we thought, as a matter of prudence, um, we should probably obey the government restrictions. They were saying at the time, 15 days to flatten the curve. And uh, actually, our elders met on Thursday before the quarantine went into effect on Friday morning. We knew it was coming. It, was, it had been announced. And we had a lengthy discussion about it. Uh, among which was, what if it's more than 15 days? What if this goes on for a month? And most of us said, look, if it's that serious that they extend it for a month, we'll continue to do it. But if it turns out to be, you know, just, if the signs are the government is simply grabbing authority, using a crisis to, to reduce our freedoms, then we'll have to revisit the issue. If this is if this is a legitimate health crisis, then we want to be 
cooperative. But if it's an attempt to, for the government to flex their muscles and exert control over people that really isn't, where there really isn't a life or death crisis, then we'll have to revisit it. And we waited until the, the quarantine was instituted in mid-March. The, we waited until June before we revisited it and said at that time, look, nobody at our church has even been hospitalized from it. No, nobody that any of us knew had died. Uh, and, and so we said, look, all right, we're not going to just openly defy, but let's just stop. Up to that point, we had been, John had been preaching to an empty auditorium and it was live streamed. And the elders said, let's, let's just not have the security guys prohibit people from coming. If anybody wants to come, that's their risk. They can do it. We're not going to keep people away from public worship. And so the first Sunday that that policy was in effect, we didn't broadcast it, didn't say anything about it, but 300 people showed up for church. And the second Sunday, the auditorium was packed. It just immediately, by word of mouth, spread that, hey, if you want to come to church, you can. And our elders said, look, we're not going to enforce uh, 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 an arbitrary... And by the way, the the government uh, guidelines were changing all the time, becoming in most cases, more and more strict when it didn't seem like there was any reason to tighten it down. People weren't dying and stacking bodies on the street like cordwood. Uh, it's just none of the dire predictions. You remember at the beginning they said, we'll probably see 2 million people die from They're predicting this. 30% mortality rate yeah. at the beginning. And none of that was happening, and we said, we, we're not gonna, we are not going to be enforcers uh, for an arbitrary policy that really doesn't seem necessary. Let's let everyone's conscience determine what they do. And the question then was, what about the masks? Are we going to enforce mask wearing? And John said, I don't want to enforce masks. Look at what Scripture says about, I mean, the Apostle Paul says, I come, I want to see you face to face. You know, we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of Christ. Uh, There's so much in Scripture about the importance of personal fellowship and face-to-face worship. Look, if somebody wants to wear a mask to keep themselves safe or or they feel conscientiously that they need to do that to protect others around them, let them do it. Nobody's going to criticize anybody for wearing a mask, but the elders of our church are not going to be enforcers of a mandate that actually hinders our singing, hinders our worship. We're just not going to do it. And so just gradually over the next three or four weeks, the church began to fill uh, we had put a tent outdoors uh, at the beginning, thinking they said if you worship outdoors, you know you can you can have church meetings. But then immediately that was one of the arbitrary things they t- overturned and said, well, no, even if you're outdoors, you can't meet in groups larger than fifteen. Things like that. <laughs> and if you looked at, I wrote a lengthy piece that demonstrated with documentation all the rules that they had put on churches that made it effectively impossible for us to have Sunday worship. There were people online saying, no, if you all obeyed the uh, restrictions, you could still meet, and you all are you know, exaggerating and all that. So I documented it all. There was absolutely nothing a church our size could do to continue having you know, corporate worship services. So we felt like, look, we've got to obey God rather than men. Uh, Jesus says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. And at the beginning of the quarantine, I don't think anyone in America mm-hmm. envisioned that the 15 days to flatten the curve was going to turn out to be 15 months to flatten the economy. Yeah. And uh, 15 months later now, 
you know, they're just saying in California that they're going to remove the restrictions. So uh, in the meantime, obviously, the as you know from the news reports, the county government uh, attempted to come after us, and uh, they fined us and threatened to uh, uh, take away parking spaces that we rent from in useless territory. It's a river that runs through the property of the church, and the sides of it are paved, and you can park there. But the county owns that property, and they said, we're going to stop letting you use that property. In all... It's been a positive thing in terms of, you know, the practical outcome to our church. We've added 1,200 people to the membership, people who came to Grace because their church was closed and had no prospect of opening again. And um, uh, so we've seen an increase in attendance, an increase in giving. Even though we haven't taken up an offering, we didn't pass the collection plate or do any, We, you know, try to take whatever reasonable measures there are not to be spreading viruses. And, you know, despite what you might read on the on, online, there has been no outbreak at Grace Church. I only know of a few people who contracted serious cases of COVID, and there were a few, and there have been a handful of elderly people with other causes who died from COVID. None of them were the people who were coming to our church gatherings. They were people in nursing homes and living at home and things like that. But people will often cite, well, I know this person who went to Grace Church who died from COVID. Yeah, in a nursing home, not at our church. Not, they, didn't, they didn't catch this at our church. They couldn't have because they weren't there. Uh, but you have a lot of that sort of talk going around. The truth is we've been meeting shoulder to shoulder, unmasked since June, and there hasn't been a serious outbreak of covid in that whole time. COVID did affect uh, people in our church in December, just like it did the rest of California. But the cases of COVID at Grace Church were percentage-wise no higher than they were in the rest of the city. And uh, so we still hold to the view that these are oppressive restrictions that uh, are an overreaction to a threat that has been nowhere near as deadly as it was originally portrayed to be. It's been unfair in the way it's been enforced because governments have encouraged and allowed, including the L.A. County people, encouraged and allowed uh, violent demonstrations in the street with, you know, thousands and thousands of people. No, No attempt was made to corral that or put a stop to it or even caution those people. Uh, and meanwhile, churches are forbidden to gather. And at one point, the restrictions even said people can't gather in private homes for prayer meetings even. So we said, we have to obey God rather than men, and we're not going to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. And the Lord has blessed us, and uh, it, it's been, in many ways, the hardest year, but the best year in the history of Grace Church. And John is over 80 years old, and now he's called to fight yet another battle, basically, standing kind of as a point man for most of, of evangelicalism yeah. that wants to push back on that. How has this affected him? Uh, it's, it's actually invigorated him, I think. You know, he, uh, he, I, I, I don't think it's been a negative result for him. He, he sees the importance of it. John's insights on things like this are remarkable. I mean, he was, he saw the need and, and, uh, was determined to respond correctly before most of the elders saw it. It did take some, Persuasion to get all the elders on the same page uh, before we reopened the church. But, uh, you know, John has 
time has proven John right on every decision he's made in the midst of it. And uh, I think it's probably one of those episodes that if the Lord doesn't return 150 years from now, people are going to be writing about and talking about John's courage in the midst of this pandemic. The, yeah, the, um, over the years, I've heard a number of teachings from Grace Community Church about civil disobedience, resisting tyranny. It seems as if, at least from somebody who sits in the cheap seats and was watching this from a distance, it seems as if there was a little bit of a shift or a change in the elder's position, John's position regarding civil disobedience and when pushing back against tyranny is, a, is, is okay. He has said in the past that the American Revolution would have been a sinful war simply because it was a rebellion against legitimate authority, um, not a position taken by um, all of Christianity, obviously, highly controversial among some sectors. Was there a change, and in what ways was there a change, or did this it just crystallize a perspective, make it more nuanced? How was how that fleshed out? Yeah, I can only tell you in my own thinking. And I would say, I would have to say, yes, I think there was a change. And I wrote about it on my blog. It's still there. Um, teampyro.blogspot.com. Teampyro, one word, .blogspot.com. And it, it's the most recent blog post that's there. I don't blog anymore, but occasionally I put something up. And the last thing I did was a Q&A about the elders' decision to open the mm-hmm. church. And that's one of the questions. Has your position on this changed? And my answer is, well, yes and no. Yes and no. I still believe, you know, Romans 13 is generally binding, that you have to obey legitimate authority. But uh, legitimate authority is defined by the realm in which the the authority has governance. And Jesus' own words make it clear that there is a distinction between the kingdom of Caesar and the kingdom of Christ. And we are to render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and to Christ what belongs to Christ. And Caesar has shown uh, an unstoppable tendency throughout church history. This is not something new in America, but throughout church history, there's been a tendency for Caesar to want to intrude into the things that are God and God's and control that. And this is another example of that. And in America, of all places, where constitutionally... The government was established with safeguards to keep Caesar from intruding into the domain of Christ, and all of that has been turned on its head now, so that the all the rules governing separation of church and state are used against the church, and Caesar is constantly intruding into the things that are Christ's. And yeah, I think there are some legitimate um, differences that pe- that good Christians might have about determining, you know, how much authority does Caesar have to make judgments in matters of health and safety? Like we, we would, we would yield obviously to the fire codes in, unless the fire codes began to be used against the church to try to shut us down. And that was the case here after such a long, uh, quarantine. And we discussed this on the night that we knew the quarantine was coming and we discussed what to do. The thing was, how long do we obey this? And in our minds that night, uh, it was inconceivable that this could go any longer than six weeks. But we said even then, if it does, we're going to have to revisit this. And it did. And we revisited it. And we concluded, based on the changing rules, the in, in consistent way that they were being enforced, and and the fact that they were increasingly focusing on the church while you know, Walmart gets to stay open, Costco gets to stay open, the gas stations, you, you, 
that's just as much exposure to the potential virus. Why is it that most of the noise and effort that the government was making to try to keep things, you know, clamped down, why was it that most of it was fo- focused on the church? Why is it that in Canada, for example, you have men thrown in prison for preaching in their church while child molesters are being turned out of prison because there's too much danger that they might get COVID in prison? It, it's, it seems to me a no-brainer and very clear that this is, if not conscious and deliberate, it is a kind of satanically motivated uh, effort to target the church in particular. And I realize it targets more than the church, but it still is persecution against the church. And so it puts us in the same position that the Apostle Peter was when they threw him in jail and the angel came and opened the gates of the jail and let him out. Is he supposed to say then, no, no, Caesar told me I have to stay in jail, so I have to go with that? Because that's a legitimate, you know, that's the realm of Caesar. He was right to leave jail at the behest of that angel uh, because Caesar had overstepped the the boundaries of his rightful authority. And we came to the conclusion that that is the case here. And now look at it more than a year later, almost a year after we reopened Grace Church. It seems to me that subsequent events have totally vindicated us. There has not been a massive... Uh, outbreak of death and serious illness at Grace Church, and we continue to worship, and we're going to continue to worship, and uh, I think it's been the right thing for us to do. Any questions on the cigars or Grace Community Church? I never thought I would say that sentence. Yes. <laughs> Not that I'm aware of, and I'm fairly certain that... Uh, Although this is going to go through some federal courts, if the county doesn't drop it, there's a possibility the county will drop it because having been charged a million and a half dollars for their mishandling of a case of another church, they've done the same thing with us. The likelihood that they'll lose and be fined seems fairly high, but if they drop the case, then they won't have to repay our legal fees. So they might drop it. But if they don't, if they press it, it will go through federal courts all the way ultimately to the Supreme Court because the issue is about, you know, constitutional freedoms, the right to assemble and the right to worship. Uh, Has the government unfairly restricted that? And I think most conscious, sentient people looking at the past year have to say, it's kind of hard to make the argument that everything the government has tried to restrict the church with is is fair and safe. So I think they're doomed to lose the case. Uh, but if they press it, it will go through the federal courts. And I, I expect that ultimately the Supreme Court, uh, which is, which is you know, tasked specifically with safeguarding our constitutional freedoms, I don't see how they could rule against us. No, to my knowledge, the... Uh, in fact, uh, the county government has been... They, they were scolded by the court. The... The, uh, the judge finally told them, leave this church alone. You brought, you know, complaints against them. It'd been, I think, at least four or five times. Enough. This is a constitutional issue and let it be settled before you keep pounding this church with threats and whatever. And I think the government did pretty much back off at that point. I think we've been able to, to worship mostly unmolested. For a brief time, they were sending health department officials to watch and take notes and write down every infraction they thought they saw. Uh, But I don't think they're doing that anymore. If they are, they're much better at hiding it.
Yeah, that's a great question. Right, that's a great question. Uh, that time hasn't come yet, mainly because so much in the media is calculated deliberately to stir those fears. And a lot of the people who who suffer from fear the worst are older people who are watching the news and living in terror, and they are they're victims more than they are, you know, malicious church avoiders, you know. So let's let's wait till the whole thing is died down. I think if if people uh, once the restrictions are all lifted and people people say I'm still not coming back to church, then we're going to have to deal with that. Well, I've tried to be patient, you know, with I have friends who in different churches have have uh been more more willing to submit to the government and and regard these restrictions as, you know, maybe prudent at least. Uh, and, and I, so far, I haven't scolded them or whatever. I've seen it as a partly a matter of Christian liberty. I, I think it's easy in this climate to be confused and fooled by it. So it isn't something I would deal with harshly yet. Uh, but like I said, once all of the restrictions are lifted, it's going to be a different thing. And you'll see uh, if there are people who say, well, I'm still not coming back, then, you know, that's going to have to be dealt with. Uh, pastors who haven't opened their churches or uh, even those who have, you know, some of them militantly defended the government restrictions, uh, I think they're going to be sorry because I think they have lost credibility and um the, the confidence of their people, because not everybody in their church is going to feel that way. It works the other way as well. There are people in our church who think, there are people who have been members of Grace Church who probably think that we've done the wrong thing by opening up, and some of them may not come back either. It surprised me that an issue like this, which I didn't see coming, nobody saw coming, would be such a divisive issue in the church. That's not, you know, what I saw might split churches. So, it's a new phenomenon and, and not an easy one to deal with as you look ahead. Uh, but I've tried to be patient with people who hold other views, but I'm not going to back off on the fact this is what we believe and this is what we're doing. I didn't hear that, the vaccine. Oh. <clears throat> yeah, again, that's one of those things that I think there are, there may be legitimate reasons on both sides of of the thing. I'm I'm not vaccinated, not going to be vaccinated because I had a case of COVID at Christmas. It was short for me. It only lasted three or four days and it wasn't serious, but I have natural immunity. So I'm not going to take a untested vaccine, but I'm not generally an anti-vaxxer. And in fact, the history of vaccines in America go back to the Puritan era. And the first person who was a strong advocate for vaccinations was Cotton Mather the very conservative uh, Puritan pastor who read voraciously scientific literature and uh, discovered some literature that suggested that uh, a vaccination could stop smallpox pandemics. And th- those came in cycles. They were predictable, like every three years or so. And so he persuaded lots of people in Boston to get vaccinated against smallpox, and it averted the that year's smallpox outbreak. 
and that's one of the things that history remembers Cotton Mather as being heroic for, because he foresaw that and and urged it and and all that. It was the right thing. The irony is that the next generation, it was a smallpox vaccination that killed Jonathan Edwards. His grandson. Uh, no. Was it Cotton Mather's grandfather? Cotton Mather was a contemporary of Solomon Stoddard, who was oh, Solomon Stoddard, grandfather right. to to uh, Jonathan Edwards. But Edwards died of a vaccine because they weren't... Uh, well, I won't go into all the vaccine stuff, but he was he was physically weak, and the kind of vaccine they were using in those days wasn't as safe as smallpox vaccination, vaccinations are today. Okay, let's take one more, Peter. Yes. Yeah, good question. Uh, I think Spurgeon was absolutely right. It's almost irrefutable when you read... And it wasn't just Spurgeon, but his friend Schindler, who wrote those two articles on the downgrade. And when you read his recounting of the cycles of heresy that have hit the church steadily and predictably ever since the uh, Protestant Reformation, and even before that, um, you see that there is a pattern. There really is a discernible pattern where liberalism in the form of Socinianism or Unitarianism or Deism, or these are all basically rooted in the same humanistic ideas, uh, and it resurfaces really every 10 or 15 years uh, with regularity. And sometimes the split that results is worse and more profound than others. Probably the worst, uh, the most... The most, the biggest sea change that ever resulted from a downgrade was after Spurgeon died, modernism destroyed every major uh, mainstream denomination. The Presbyterians, the Methodists, uh, you know, they all went liberal, and even a lot of the Baptists. The Southern Baptists kind of tried to survive, but now they're teetering on the brink again. And I honestly think that the social justice issue, which you guys are studying next year with the, with Daryl and Virgil, the social justice issue is simply, it's a, it's a scaled down version of the emerging church movement that, that was vying for attention 15, 20 years ago. They were all about social justice as well. But it's a, it's a Trojan horse for theological liberalism. And it's, it's going to leave, uh, a big mark. It's going to split, I think, the Southern Baptists this time. But what happens typically in history is when there's a downgrade like that, there's always also a remnant that emerges from that, a truly evangelical remnant who rediscover the gospel and recommit to it. And the growth of the church always happens in these churches that come out of the remnant, the liberal churches always fade and die. They don't always go completely away. They still are populated with a few people. Their influence is down. They keep teaching their bad ideas, and eventually those infiltrate the offspring of the remnant church, and it goes bad. And then the same cycle happens over and over again. So that's what I think is on the horizon. We're about to see a massive split in evangelicalism. These two large organizations that started in the wake of the emerging church movement, together for the gospel and the gospel coalition, both of them devoted their last national conferences to the social justice issue. And as a result, both of them have been moving further and further away from their founding principles. Uh, they're talking about social justice now rather than the gospel. And uh, and I think there will come in the f- generation that follows a new core of 
Christians, a smaller number than than large evangelicalism looks like today, but the remnant who will stay convinced and and devoted to the gospel, and the future of church growth will will dwell with them. And I'm not discouraged by it. It's it's disturbing to watch, and it uh, it's frustrating when it affects people you love and churches that, like even my alma mater, Moody Bible Institute, which managed to stay evangelical for more than a hundred years has sold out completely to the social justice liberalizing themes. And I don't know that you'd find anyone teaching at Moody Bible Institute anymore who still holds to the core truths of the gospel in the way they did just 20 years ago. And I I think that institution is probably unrecoverable. And that always happens to schools and churches Almost universally, like I said, uh, the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London is the only church I can name that has remained evangelical for 350 years. Uh, in, earthly institutions, human institutions always go liberal, but the new ones come out of the mess. So I'm not a pessimist. I'm, I'm a Calvinist. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, I, and I know that the gates of hell won't prevail against the church. Uh, so I'm not discouraged, not utterly discouraged by it, but it is frustrating to watch. I hope that you feel like you have been benefited by being here these last couple of days. This has been fantastic. So, Phil, until you keep your word and come back again for the next set of sessions on Spurgeon, let us give you a hearty thanks for All coming right. and doing this. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting kootenaichurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.